Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. We're well and truly back in the saddle now. The wind is in our sails and the engines are running to completely mangle the sporting metaphors to get this week's podcast kicked off. Basically, football has started again. That's kind of all I really wanted to say. We had a good win on Monday night. Midweek games didn't quite go as well as we might have liked, apart from, of course, Manchester United getting beaten by Wolves. But Chelsea won and Tottenham won, and we're now sitting at the time of recording in fourth place. Uh, Tottenham have gone ahead of us, boo, playing at their uh, new stadium. Apparently, they've got a, a new stadium. Well, it's not really a new stadium, is it? It's not. It's just like the old stadium... And they've got an extension done. That's basically it. It's not like they've gone to a new place and constructed an entirely new stadium. So, you know, let's call it what it is, a fixer-upper. But, you know, I wasn't aware. It wasn't as if all week long there were articles and videos and blog posts and tweets and Facebooks and all kinds of shit about, well, look at this new Tottenham Stadium. How does it compare to the Arsenal Stadium? Why can't it just be a fucking thing on its own? Because, like, A, nobody cares, apart from Tottenham fans, what the differences are between Arsenal Stadium and this, you know, uh, refurb job that they did on White Hart Lane. Literally, nobody cares apart from Tottenham fans. So why don't they just, like, make it its own thing? It can just be a thing on its own. It doesn't have to be compared to everything else. It's like the the bricks and mortar equivalent of uh, combined 11. What's your combined Arsenal and Tottenham 11 ahead of a North London derby? Which, of course, as we all know, that is a complete load of bollocks. Big old bollocky bollocks. Bollocking bollocky bastard bollocks. That's what I say about all that. Um, it's going to be busy. It is going to be busy the next uh, few weeks. We have a game on Sunday, and then we have a game on Thursday, and then we have a game on Monday, and then another game on Thursday, then a game on Sunday, then a game on Wednesday, then another Monday, and that is the month of April. All these fixtures piling up. No rest for the wicked. A lot for us to do. A big challenge between now and the end of April because it will basically define our season. We've got two Premier League games in May, which of course are important, but you will have and we will all have a very good idea of whether or not top four is going to be a thing probably by the end of this month. 
the uh, remaining Premier League games that we've got. Uh, Everton, of course, on Sunday. We're going to touch on that. Watford away on the Monday. Then we've got Crystal Palace at home on the Sunday. Wolves away on Wednesday. Uh, and then Leicester away on the following Monday. So... Given our away day uh, inconsistencies, there's a lot going on in this particular month. And as I've said before, the games are going to come like Kyle Walker, thick and fast. So, uh, as I said, we're going to talk about Everton in a moment with our first guest on the show today. A little bit later on, we're going to look at just a little bit further ahead because it's not something myself and James normally do on the Arscast Extra, which is preview games that we've got coming up. But two games against Napoli in the Europa League are going to be a real test, a real challenge. What can we expect from Napoli? Who the danger men are? What way we should set up? All of that kind of stuff. We're going to talk to Paolo Bandini because he, of course, knows everything there is to know about Serie A, Italian football. So who better to talk to about Napoli than him? That's later. But right now, delighted to welcome back to the show a man many of you will know as the co-host of Men in Blazers. He is an Everton fan, and we're going to talk to him because Arsenal are playing Everton this weekend. It's Roger Bennett. Hi, Rog. Oh, Andrew, it's great to be with you ahead of the weekend. Two teams with surging confidence. Arsenal's real. Everton's totally delusional. What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. Well, look, I think between the uh, the two of us, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, we could. Uh, <laughs> we, we, it's limitless. There's there's no end of possibilities as to what could happen. Arsenal away from home. Everton being Everton, I guess. Um, and we can talk about them a little bit later on, but. You, you want to talk a little bit about what's happened at Arsenal this season under Unai Emery, and you've been pretty impressed with what you've seen. I'm happy for you, Andrew. I'm happy for you. An Arsenal that that's teetering with something other than self-loathing, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to see again. I mean, not quite self-confidence, but and nowhere near self-love. But, I mean, I will say, at the beginning of the season, there was a danger that you were simply becoming posh Everton. But you have avoided that. <laughs> and I, I, I feel a genuine delight for you. And also, I mean, it's a, the story that no one's talking about, possibly because of the Manchester City-Liverpool duel, possibly because of the romance of, uh, of Solskjaer at United. But it is, it's the it's transformation that no one is talking about, that everyone's sleeping on, the stealth storyline of the season, the, the Unai Emery revolution. He gets no respect, but he's done a ton right. Yeah, I tell you, what's interesting, I think, is that so much of what revolved around Arsenal over the last couple of years was that, you know, Arsene Wenger was front and central to all of it because he'd been there for so long and, and you know, the Wenger out thing was pervasive. Wherever you looked, whether it was at football or whether it was a political rally in Zimbabwe, there was somebody with a Wenger out sign. You know, <laughs> Arsenal, much like um, some other things that are going on around the world that we don't need to mention, but everybody will know what we're talking about. They're inescapable uh, back then. You know, when you turned on the news, there was Arsenal in much the same way that things are going on now. And I think that that's gone that kind of thing is gone now, and maybe we are flying a little bit under the radar because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think mostly the most important radar that you're flying under right now, and it's the critical one, because you've got, you know, you've got a squad with glaring weaknesses playing to its strengths. You've got Lacquer, you've got his best mate, Obama Yang. Again, the two of them are a symbol of your arsenal, probably the most slept-on strike duo in the Premier League right now. Um, you've got, you know, the, this period of time that I, 
it's a stunning. I, we emailed about it a bit um, this week, the week before together. Mm. Where was it? Like six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, English journalists were writing a lot of op-eds about Arsenal. What is the point of Arsenal? What they've lost their complete mission. They're just drifting aimlessly. And you just tenaciously kept going. And ultimately, <clears throat> as an Everton fan, tenacity is one of the great joys that we've savoured in football. So I really admire it. You've got big games. You actually have hope in big games. A sense that Arsenal will now do something more than just roll over. But the one radar, ultimately, that's really important for you to actually know whether you're on it or not is Stan Kroenke's. Yeah. Actually, it's never clear to me, based in America whether Stan Kroenke actually knows he owns Arsenal, Andrew, or whether he's just befuddled by a rounding error on his balance sheet and he gets occasionally he's like, what is this, guys? What is this thing? Well, and yeah. ultimately, that's the critical thing for you guys as you as you look next step, whether he is willing to look at what Emery's done and say, there's something there. There's something really quite wonderful there for the first time in a long time, and I'm going to back it. I'm going to back it. He's not going to back it seriously because he's Stan bloody Kroenke. But he's going to back it sufficiently so you continue to uh, to great. Well, you hope so. I mean, I think this summer is going to be very interesting in that regard. He, he does have his hands and his wallet full with a, a project in Los Angeles uh, to which he's given very uh, significant financial guarantees. And, you know, Arsenal fans have been worrying a little bit about what kind of money we're going to have to spend this summer. But you would hope that if Emery does achieve what I guess he was uh, brought in to achieve, and that's to bring back Champions League football to Arsenal. And we're in a good position uh, to do that with seven games left to play, albeit five of them are away from home. And, uh, you know, we, we have They're our... Winnable, They're they, winnable. On paper, they're winnable, but away from home, Arsenal have got this... this we're, We've travel sickness, you know, no matter how much you try and uh, keep the car steady or whatever, we need the you know to hang our heads out the window and be sick uh, every so often. So that, that's <laughs> that's kind of the worry that that I have with with where we are. We're in a great position, but you know, if we do achieve top four and get into the Champions League next season, I think people would be disappointed if there wasn't some measure of. Uh, what's as you say backing from the owner of the club yeah. I mean it's not that anybody I don't think anybody expects Stan Kroenke to turn up in London and put down a briefcase full of gold bullion or cash or anything like that but you know maybe expand the club's financial horizons a little bit and, and uh, take a few risks in, in the transfer market he can give you one of his miniature giraffes that I think he keeps on his desk or one of his uh, one of his Fabergé eggs he'll, he'll cough one of those up and, and ultimately Emery definitely deserves it. I mean, for the past couple of seasons, we've always joked that to be an Arsenal fan was to like live out Nietzsche's words, that to live is to suffer and to survive <laughs> is to find some meaning in the suffering. But I will say as an Everton fan, I want, you know, ultimately after saying that for the past four or five seasons, Arsenal fans can look at Everton and throw those words right back into my face. And I do encourage Arsenal fans as you approach Everton. I know it's like you've travel sickness. There's all kinds of things. What can go wrong now? Everton are very much, we've ingrained ourselves as the equivalent of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, where when, you know, there's an awful reality and you, you need to have something great in your life, you come to clubs that haven't won in 12 games on the road, come to Goodison Park, and we're very, very generous. Clubs <laughs> that desperately need three points because they're in the relegation zone. and Everything, that is, the, the thing you most yearn for most often happens when you interact with Everton. We're generous, we're charitable, uh, we're very, very giving. Um, it's been a, I will say it's been a dark season 
almost the opposite of yours, which, um, you know, I started like a stock that traded strongly. I mean, we're, I, I think of us like Theranos, that, uh, the, the, the uh, we, we kind of spiked everywhere. Everyone was looking at us. And then December, Liverpool, Origi broke us with his shoulder up. Um, mm. And we've really never recovered. Yeah, that was that was that was a grim way to to lose a derby. That's for sure. And look, much of what you're saying there about being very generous and, and hospitable to opposition teams, uh, that will resonate with Arsenal fans because that was certainly something that we were more than capable of. Maybe still are capable of, but not as much under Emery. Um, I, I know that when uh, you know during the course of the season you will come to the UK and you'll interview and you you've done interviews with lots of managers. Uh, you did a brilliant one with Arsene Wenger a couple of years ago. Um, are you planning or trying to to do something with Unai Emery? Are you waiting maybe another six or twelve months until his English is a bit more fluent? At the moment, it's it's a little bit difficult to. Um, for him, I think, to express himself as fully as he might, given that he's only a year into life in England and, and still learning the language. But I'd be really curious to see what you could get out of him. Yeah, I, this year we did Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It was mm. really, genuinely um, a phenomenal bloke. Um, we've just gone to Liverpool and spent the week with them and did and a... Uh, we caught Jurgen Klopp at a wonderful time. Wonderful time for me. They'd just drawn... With Everton, <laughs> all, of the, all the British journalists were at his throat, choking storylines and Salah storylines. And he just came in and uh, and I asked Jurgen Klopp, uh, I was trying to ask him the same question, but not in the same way, because I'd just seen him be asked it 27 times by every British journalist. And it gets, it's like pushing on a nerve. Yeah. So I asked him, I said, Jürgen, I said, Jürgen, how do you sleep when you're in the middle of a title race, trying to get in the same issues, but a different way? And he goes, how do I sleep? Um, he said, I sleep like any 51-year-old. I sleep for two or three hours at a time and then have to make a wee. Um, and then he just <laughs> died from there exactly where I wanted to go. And he was really, really rather remarkable. I'd love to speak to Unai Emery. You say his English isn't good. It's definitely already better than mine. And I hope, I, I genuinely do that. The Premier League, I'm trying to watch football in this awful era, Andrew, this Trump era, this Brexit era. Well, there's just so much there is. I'm really trying, definitely the past two years, to watch football with so much less hate. And I'm a very horrible person. Anyone that knows me, I'm just an awful human being. But I'm trying to watch football without the hate and without, the, you know, there's enough of that in real life now to not spill it over. And I know it's a crazy idea from a British perspective because football is a lot about feeling better about your team and laughing at everybody else's. But I, I, like, I look at Arsenal and... I'll be honest, everyone's better off when Arsenal are doing well. The Premier League's better off. The competition's better off. The um, the, the whole uh, of football is better off. And I'm genuinely thrilled for you. And I hope that um, if the finish uh, is as strong as, as you want it to be, um, that I do get to spend some time with Arsenal that season. Because I, I mean, talking about hate, for much, <laughs> I haven't said that. The, the only way to watch Everton this season, I've realised, is to actually hate watch them for long spells. You just hate watch them just to resign yourself to defeat before kickoff and enjoy whatever meagre scraps of, uh, of pleasure can come your way. And, and, and that's, uh, that's kind of where I'm reserving, reserving the anger. I've got a huge amount of admiration. I, I loved it. With the awesome Wenger interview I did, the, the mm. quote that I love from it, and I, I, I think about it a lot. 
um, was he talked about the greatest quality he admires in footballers is tenacity. And you do better impressions than Arsene Wenger and all of your listeners do than I could do. So I'm not going to do his accent, but it sounds better from him. He did. He just said, at the end of the day, the greatest quality in a footballer, the greatest quality in life is tenacity, the willingness to get up off the floor um, when you're knocked down and keep going and keep going. And I really, I, I admire that greatly. And Arsenal have shown an incredible amount of tenacity. And I think it's a human wonder. Yep. Everton, no tenacity, none. And that's what pisses me off the most about this season. So that's really, what, really does. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where, that's kind of where you are with Everton. You set the bar so low that any, any tiny little thing is jumped on and grasped as something to enjoy. Because, you know, when, when Sam Allardyce, who, you oh. know, it's fair to say, uh, never really uh, came across to me as the kind of manager that Everton fans would warm to uh, in terms of what they might envisage. Say, House Frey, Walder Frey, the Walder Frey of football. Just, uh, <laughs> a, a, just a human darkness. Yeah, carry on. But, you know, with, with Marco Silva coming in, it was supposed to be different. No, I mean, this was a, a young up-and-coming manager, even if perhaps some alarm bells should have been ringing by the fact that, you know, when he goes to a club, he doesn't always stay there very long. But, you know, people <laughs> people were talking about, you know, his style of football. You know, he's young, he's Portuguese, he's uh, maybe a bit charismatic. Uh, comparisons were drawn with some other guy I can't remember at this point. He's, you know, gone out of the public consciousness and, and we can forget him uh, because, you know, he's consigned to the dustbins of history. But, you know, was it not supposed to be different this season for Everton? Yeah, I mean, football transformation projects are just like, they're ultimately like heart transplants. You never really know if the donor body is going to take to the new organ or not. You look at it, you know, you look at Klopp and what he's done at Liverpool, transforming that club. And and, and the, when he came in, Liverpool fans, there's been moments where they've doubted completely. You know, always the stats they'll throw up. Brendan Rodgers at 42 games, Klopp at 42 games, same points. Mm. Um, and you, you do that. You see Sarri, oh my Lord, coming in meant to transform everything. You can pick several Chelsea managers, to be honest. And, um, and, and you look at, Sometimes we all hail the new manager, the new transformation. Another reason why I love what Emery's done. I mean, to take those punches at the beginning with that brutal schedule you've, that you had. Yeah. Um, and to just keep persistently. You, you never really know with transformation, unless it's at Everton Football Club, where it does have one false start uh, after another. You know, the the Cooman false start. The, uh, my God, the Sam Allardyce. Really a dark, um, a dark moment for anyone that cares about love. And how, I mean, we've, we've lived a life, um, and I'm saying this to you, you've suffered, you've worn nipple, rusty nipple clamps for, for, for many, many, uh, for many, many 90 minute periods at a time. And we are, we are sadder than the Tracy Chapman album. And always the thing with Marco Silva is like, we've got to kind of keep him because otherwise it just becomes one false start after another. I mean, it's been a wasted season. And the only reason it could get worse, and I did have a nightmare to this effect, Andrew, recently, was that we hired Jose Mourinho in my dreams. Oh. And it was, it was, it was a human darkness. I, I watched the Oscars with, this is how desperate I am. I watched the Oscars this season, this year, this season. This I watched the Oscars <laughs> this year. And I was like, oh man, the Oscars did, it was all right with no host. It wasn't great, but it was all right. Uh, maybe Everton should pioneer no manager, no, uh, you know, no management football, just play without a manager. Or get Tony Hibbo as player manager, which would be my, my best. Get Tony Hibbert back. Get him in the 
just managerless football may be the only way we can go. It's been a dark reality. It's been a wasted season. You know, Everton have, and you'll see on on Sunday, we have a few partnerships on the field. We're always a team that overachieved. The, the Everton teams I've loved most, other than in the 80s, obviously, when we were, we were, we, we were a team of wonder. But the modern period was when we overachieved with hustle, with collective... Uh, belief, you know, the, and combinations, Pinar and Baines, um, Cahill versus all comers. Um, and right now, we're just a team of parts. You don't really think of combinations. We're like an exquisite corpse of, of, of odd transfers, Panini, sticker book driven transfers, you know, Gilfie, Sigurdsson, a wonderful man when he played with Urente. That's a, such a funny combination. They were, they were like 150% players when they played together and separate, they're like 33% of the, mm. of the men they were, both of them. Yeah, and look, we're go on. Uh, one man I suppose we have to mention, I'm kind of loath to mention uh, him because we have the... Uh, Theon. <laughs> yeah, Theon Gray, no joy. Um, <laughs> we, we, we have to mention him because, you know, as an Arsenal fan, yeah. and ev- everyone listening to this is going to be uh, worried that the, the former player thing comes back to bite us in the arse. And, you know, I'm sure somebody out there has done the stats where, in reality, a former player coming back to their old club only scores, you know, 6% of the time. But when you're an Arsenal fan, it feels like fucking 75% or 100% of the time. Um you know, Theo left, I think, with, you know, pretty much goodwill from the Arsenal fans because we felt like we had seen the best of him. Um, but it hasn't gone particularly well at Everton. Um, there's a story this week I read in The Guardian that his his future is in doubt. He's not really playing very much anymore. I mean, what's your assessment of, of Theo Walcott going into this game? I think, let me, first of all, assuage your fear about an ex-player haunting you at this weekend. There is more chance that Philippe Senderos will exhume himself uh, from his grave and come back to Everton to haunt you. There's more chance that George Wood will come back and <laughs> haunt you than than uh, than Theo. Oh, God, I mean, I look at. I mean, again, it's the Game of Thrones weekend. So, like, you look at Reek and the suffering he's been through, and I'd imagine Reek, like Theon, has probably suffered less than poor Theo Walcott has um, at Everton. It's really heartbreaking from a human perspective, not a footballing one, to watch him, just watching a man, a, a lovely man, a really pl- a, a good man, I think, playing mm. in, a, in, a, in a puddle of his own bleeding confidence. He's got, I think, one goal since, <laughs> since August. I'm not sure if that's August 2015, 2016. <laughs> it, it was so... He's had 30 minutes actually on the field since the Derby Day defeat that killed us. And there's a lot of players ahead of him. There's Bernard, tiny weeny little toothpick of a player. Bernard, there's Rich Arlison with his little chicken head. Adamola Luckman, our giant baby, all ahead of him. And I look at Theon, and he's like a cautionary tale for all of you young listeners, kids listening to Andrew's show. If you don't find your confidence and your willingness to grind, you will get sent north above the wall and he does, he acts as if Everton is the night's watch and he's been sent there for punishment for this night and all nights to come. And he just looks shell-shocked. He's still shell-shocked this long in, up north. I think of him like walking around the north of England, just terrified. He looks like a man who doesn't want to come out of his bedroom and he just has his tattoo artist and the hairdresser come and do home visits. So I feel for him. 
And I think when the game earlier in the season, my, my best mate is a is a uh, is a huge Arsenal fan, lifetime Guna, Michael Cohen, not not the uh, the awful um, yeah, the awful dark um, Donald Trump one, another Michael Cohen. God love you, Michael Cohen. And we were watching the game together, and he just WhatsApp me. He goes, "We are both shit." Can I say that on your show? Yes, of course. He goes, he goes, you say that on television in America. You use that word all the time when you sit behind. Hey, I, d- I, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. I would have been more creative if I'd known. Uh, so Michael, Michael Kerrion, he goes, he goes look, uh, we're both shit. The only difference is you've got Theo this time. So that's ultimately it. He will not come back to haunt you, Andrew, I can assure you. Okay, I feel like you're uh, protesting a little too much here, (laughs) doing that thing. There's no possible way that this could happen, you know. Yes, that's definitely my style. I can't manage my expectations. We'll see. But just before I let you go, um, just your thoughts on the the Premier League uh, season in general. Uh, I mean, it feels like... There's a good title race going on. I know it's a little bit difficult for you because of your um, affiliation to to Everton, but obviously, you know, Liverpool are potential champions for the first time in a long time. Um, I, I have to say, personally, I'm glad that there's a title race, that it isn't just Manchester City and Abu Dhabi walking away with another Premier League. Um, I know lots of the listeners would prefer Man City to win it because they're not going to be as inflicted by Manchester City fans as they are Liverpool fans because they've got lots of Liverpool fans who they know in Manchester City. Not that they're a recent phenomenon, but their success at this level is. So people can sort of compartmentalize it a little bit more. But... I think it's been quite an interesting season from that point of view. And then you look a little bit below what was a, a one team uh, or uh, three teams going for one place in the top four because of Tottenham's recent slump. Now we've got two teams or four teams going for two places. God, oh my, my maths is terrible today. But, you know, there is uh, the, the title race and then there's a good scrap for the for the other places in the top four, which makes it interesting for everyone, I think. Yeah, I, mean, I can only speak about it from the American perspective is probably most useful because the, the questions you're outlining, each one of your listeners, everyone in a pub anywhere in Europe will weigh in with their opinions and almost everyone will agree with you. I can say from America where the game has really taken off since the 2010 World Cup and then really the 2014, it went mainstream with the Premier League. You know, Americans love the best, the NFL is that that is Super Bowl? It's the best. It is the best in the world. That that World Series baseball, um, which is a monopoly. It's always two North American teams, but it is the best baseball teams in the world. And it's quite perplexing for them. You know, the NBA, the best basketball, the, the best football is not in America, and it is in it, it is in England. And so they watch this Premier League, and they love it also because it's not competing in prime time against their other sports. They can get up open a beer at breakfast. Americans love daytime drinking and any excuse for that is a double win. So they've really gotten into this Premier League. I can say there's been an incredible spike. You know, the league's been growing uh, for the under 30 demo, which is the coveted one in television land, massively year to year. But this year it's been, the growth has been unbelievable because of the narrative, the, the, the race for the title, the race for the top four, even just the fact that people, everybody else, uh, is sucked into the mire of that last relegation place. It's like the the soap opera, the telenovela worth of narrative is really gripping. This weekend, last weekend, um, NBC or the rights holder here had a um, had a live broadcast from Fenway Park 
obviously the Liverpool connection owned by the Liverpool owners. Yeah. And they had 11,000 fans uh, come and watch the games outside of Fair. It was an amazing scene. It was an wow. amazing, even I'm a cynical, horrible, awful human being. I looked at it. I was like, oh my God, there's 11,000 people watching outside together, watching Liverpool uh, and Tottenham. And I can just say it's really, uh, th- there's an incredible spike and, and Americans are, are, are genuinely remarkably hooked. And, I, and for your benefit of your audience, Arsenal have a huge, huge percentage. They really outpunch their weight um, as Americans are looking at the Premier League with fresh eyes, uh, ungeographically moored, are trying to find the team that they support. American Arsenal fans is an incredibly, uh, yeah. incredibly fast-growing demographic, and you will no doubt have a great weekend against a team, Everton, whose well, season highlight thus far has been booing Ross Barkley <laughs> against Chelsea, uh, having a, a cat run onto the field, a beautiful little black cat with stunning green eyes, and watching Jordan Pickford with his smallest little windmills you'll ever see getting into a bar fight. That is essentially... The, the entirety of our season highlight DVD. So I expect wow. you're going to have a great weekend ahead, Andrew. Okay, well, I do. I know we have a, a very big American audience who uh, who will be listening to this, of course. And, you know, a cat on the pitch is right up there with a dog in a school, isn't it? It's one of the greatest things that can ever happen. <laughs> look, there's a dog in the school. How did it get in here? It's brilliant. Well, look, I hope we get a dog and a cat on the pitch uh, on Sunday. And hopefully, oh, um, hopefully it's a good game. Rog, it's a pleasure as always to talk to you. Uh, Arsenal are in the US, of course, uh, this summer. They're playing in LA. They're playing in Charlotte in North Carolina and also just outside Washington, D.C. So maybe we might get to see you at some point during the summer. Oh, mate, I'd love to have a point with you. What's your prediction? Let's finish with a prediction for you for the weekend. I'm hopeful we might just sneak it 3-2 cuz I you know I worry a bit uh, about us defensively. We've kept three clean sheets in a row so I feel like we're saving something up uh, from a defensive lapse point of view. But we do have some good goal scorers in the team so I, I hopefully we can nick it by by a single goal. You? My my heart says 5-0 Everton, Jenk Toten <laughs> with all five goals. But my my mind my mind looks at last season's games. What do you you won 5-2? Didn't yeah. you? And we scored first in that one. And then you won 5 1. Aaron Ramsey always seems to do it. So, this befuddling farewell talk that he's on, I don't understand it. You probably have talked hours about it. Yeah. I have a feeling you are you're absolutely good. I think we're going to score first. You're going to absolutely lather us. I even see Mustafi getting a goal, and I'll end up in a heat <laughs> in a recovery position, having a sad nap. There'll be lots of fast car. Enjoy every second. and and courage to, uh, to all of your listeners. You Thanks, man. You won't be alone if Mustafi scores. I think there'll be a lot of people in the fetal <laughs> position trying to figure out what the fuck has happened. Uh, Raj, thanks a million. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much indeed to Raj. You can find him on Twitter, at Raj Bennett, at Raj Bennett. If you're in the US, you can uh, watch him as one half of Men in Blazers on a little-known network called NBC. You can download the Men in Blazers podcast if you like. And I absolutely think he was playing down the potential for Theo Walcott to make an impact in this game, just so he might make Theo Walcott have an impact in that way that we wear lucky socks and think that might make a difference when we go to a football match. It doesn't. But there you go. Also, I didn't rise to the Tracy Chapman bait, did I? No, I didn't. We can do that another day, I think. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Right. It's time to look ahead a little bit further than this weekend because we have got two Europa League ties against Napoli coming up. And who better to take us through the uh, the ins and outs of that than Paolo Bandini. Hi, Paolo. Good to be on as always. Tell me this um, about our Europa League opponents. They are second in Serie A. Um, Juventus obviously are, are running away with it. But Napoli, they have a seven-point gap over Inter Milan in third place. They are, would you say, by some way the best of the rest? Yes, they certainly have been. And it's it's um, it's sort of interesting at the moment because they go through this slightly erratic uh, run of form in, in which, you know, even in the last, uh, what, four mm. days, five days, they thumped Roma 4-1. Now, admittedly, Roma are a bit of a mess at the moment, but Roma are theoretically one of the teams vying for a Champions League spot right now, a team that was in the Champions League this season, and they they beat them 4-1 on their own patch, and they've gone and lost uh, just last night to Empoli, who are relegation uh, strugglers away from home, and they're a team slightly struggling for motivation at the moment, because they've been so comfortably second for a long time, and the gap to Juventus now at the top of the double-tech is 18 points. I knew it was so many points that you don't even keep track anymore, and it's been like that forever. You know, Juventus got got ahead early and haven't looked back, which is uh, a very different position, for instance, to the one that Napoli were in last season when Napoli were pushing them right till the end, when they did get over 90 points themselves, when they were um, really sort of believing at a certain point in, in, in April that actually they could win the title. So their whole season is distilled down to these two Europa League games now. It's, it's as simple as that. I mean, after the defeat to, to Empoli, um, Carlo Ancelotti, obviously their manager, was, was, was talking about uh, a lack of motivation and, and, and focus from his players. And he tried to insist that it wasn't about the Europa League, but it's hard to, to colour it any other way. It's, it's, it's what they've got to play for this season, given that their top four spot is, is effectively assured. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's very much all they're focused on right now is, is the Arsenal tie, whereas, of course, Arsenal have uh, a few other things to worry about at the same time. Yeah, two, Arsenal have uh, two irons in the fire, I think, when it comes yeah. to, to the Champions League, because the, the Premier League, something we might talk about a bit later, is, is a consideration for Arsenal. So what you're saying, basically, is that we are going to face a Napoli side that, even if they are somewhat struggling for motivation in Serie A, are going to be laser-focused on these two Europa League games because that is the competition that can give them something tangible from this season. 
Yeah, I mean, this was, um, you know, I was actually just uh, doing um, an Italian football podcast earlier today um, for ESPN, and um, I was having this exact conversation about Napoli. I was saying, it's fine, they, they can lose to Empoli and it doesn't matter because the gap to fifth place, I think, is, is to, I think 15 points. So it's 18 points to first and it's 15 points to fifth. There's, there's nothing to worry about. But it's that same question we end up asking of teams like Paris Saint-Germain, say, in, in Europe, and when they sort of are steamrolling everyone and we say, OK, but are they playing competitive games? Are they going to get late in the European competition and not know how to play a competitive game anymore? And I suppose that's the concern from Napoli's point of view is are they going to be able to switch the gears back up and say, oh, hang on, this is, this is the one that matters. But certainly um, they can sort of conserve their energies for it because, yes, as you just said, they've only got the one iron in the fire. Has this season domestically been a disappointment for them then given how much more competitive the league was last season was their belief that they could push Juventus all the way I mean you know this is this will be what Juventus seventh or eighth consecutive Serie A title this will be the eighth this will um, be the eighth so yeah. yeah and 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 it's you know it's easy to look at that and, and and just assume they've all been walkovers when as I've just said last season definitely wasn't I mean when Napoli went to Turin and beat Juventus in April uh, it very much looked like the, the, the ball was in their court Juventus had much tougher remaining fixtures um, but Napoli just couldn't couldn't quite last the course they still again got over 90 points so it was an extraordinary season and, and the thing for Napoli is Whilst, of course, fans would much rather see them competing with Juventus, having the season they had last year, there's also a very strong awareness in Naples that that isn't a realistic expectation. Um, in terms of, of finances, they're not only uh, a long way behind Juventus. Napoli don't spend anything like, say, Inter do or Milan do, yeah. or I think even the, the Roma do. They're not sort of structurally one of the richest clubs um, in Italy. They're not one of those clubs that has the international brand that, that, that generates all this extra income. They're a, a club that represents an extremely uh, passionate and wholehearted city in which they have um, incredibly committed and, and loud support. Um, but they have a, a, an absolutely disgraceful stadium, which is why you, even though they've got that great support, you often see the stadium not being full because it's uh, somewhere between um, sort of just dilapidated and horrible to be in and also unsafe in parts. It's, yeah. it's just a really bad stadium. Uh, and 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 so, yes, they're, they're a club that has been punching above its... Um, I don't know, I don't know if you say punching above its, its weight in, in recent years, really, to be Juventus' number one challenger. They're not structurally that. Um, and it's why the Europa League, whilst it was disappointing for them to crash out of the Champions League, I mean, bear in mind, they started the season so well in the Champions League. It really looked like they were going to be getting out of that group, which they shared with Paris Saint-Germain and Liverpool. Um, and they got pipped right at the, the, the yeah. last by Liverpool as well. So it was a disappointment for them to come into the Europa League but the Europa League is very much something that would mean a lot there and, and would be a, a significant trophy because they're not a team again structurally built to do this they had their, their golden era with Diego Maradona but they're not a team that has won trophies consistently in any way um, through the, through their history so it's not disappointment that they're not close to Juventus um, it's definitely been a year of transition because obviously Maurizio Sarri was there last year and now as everyone at Chelsea has discovered, Maurizio Sarri is a very <laughs> particular coach. He, you know, he comes in and it's it's his way, and and he has. Look, it worked for Napoli. It was fantastic for Napoli. Again, ninety-one points. He it, he was a, a huge success there. Um, but it's it's a it's a very ideological way of viewing football. Maurizio Sarri is there's there's a system, and the system is is king. Ancelotti is, is the opposite. Ancelotti is a pragmatist and someone who uh, has a more laid back way of sort of certainly at least being in public and, and who definitely has a more flexible approach when it comes to, uh, to tactics and, and to how he sort of approaches games. I think that 
Well, again, you know, in, talking just in terms of results, they've been worse. So from that mm. point of view, you, you could argue that there could be some disappointment. But my sense has not been at all uh, from the people I speak to in Naples that anyone is disappointed by what happened, what, by the results in the league this season. Because, again, the expectation bar isn't set so high in Naples, even after what happened last season. And there's been a lot of enjoyment, actually, of the football that's been played under Ancelotti, the fact that he's rotated in a bunch of younger players who, who um, Mario Sarri didn't use. He's been more flexible in, in his approach. Uh, and he's just such a genial character, Ancelotti. And he's a hard yeah. guy not to like that he's he's won a lot of support in Naples. But of course, they would really love to go all the way in this competition. Sure. And they've had, you know, David Ospina to give them some of the lols as uh, well along the way. <laughs> but, yeah, well, you know, he also, I'm, I'm sure you would have seen this there. You know, he was caught in a yeah. not so, not so uh, jolly situation the other day where he took a serious blow to the head, happily all okay in that situation in the end. He isn't, um, he isn't and, 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 and never has been by design their number one goalkeeper but he has ended up sort of functioning as it a lot this season because Alex Meret, who's the the young Italian who's, who's supposed to be uh, the the future of that position, he's um, he's been injured a lot. So Spina's actually played a good number of games and he's done pretty well. He's done okay. Yeah. Meret is is back and should be playing against Arsenal. So I mean, when you talk about Ancelotti in terms of tactical flexibility, are we looking at a coach who operates in a similar kind of way to Unai Emery in that he will tailor his approach to the opposition? What way has he got Napoli playing this? season yeah so uh, most games under Ancelotti uh, we've seen a 4-4-2 of some description but it is 4-4-2 it, it sometimes it feels like that's a sort of notional starting point and then uh, it can be very flexible for instance in those Champions League games at the beginning uh, of the the season when he was doing very well against uh, Liverpool obviously beat Liverpool in Naples um, drew away to Paris Saint-Germain was really unlucky to draw that game because it took an, a wonder goal from Angel Di Maria late in the game to to level that up and then they drew again against Paris Saint-Germain at home what we saw in those games actually was that they the formation while again it was notionally uh, a 4-4-2 he was starting um, Nikola Maksimovic who is uh, very much a well I suppose he has played it right back in his career but he's, he's not fast and he's someone who you look at and think really you want him at right back and, and that's notionally where he was in this 4-4-2 now in reality every time uh, Napoli were losing the ball Maksimovic was sliding inside and, and Callejon was dropping back to play as a wing back so it became a 3-5-2 um, much more and, and Maksimovic at right back was sort of a, a constant uh feature during that Champions League run. And I think at the beginning, people looked at it and thought, this guy's absolutely bonkers because he's lining him up against guys like Sadio Mane. He's lining him up against Kylian Mbappe. These incredibly fast attackers and Maksimovic is really slow. But again, because the formation was fluid, it, it didn't work out like that. You were never leaving Maksimovic isolated against one of those attackers. And if anything, perhaps you were lulling opponents into thinking that that was a, a way to attack you when, when actually it wasn't. Um, so it's 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 often in in that sort of subtlety with Ancelotti that you see that you see his his um, I guess his his genius. I mean, we can call him that. He's won the Champions League several yeah. times. So um, those are the the things that have stood out about his Napoli team. Uh, in terms of the the, the again the, the broad structure, it has generally been a two man attack, which is um, different, of course, to Matteo Sarri, who generally plays a three man attack. Um, at the beginning of the season, uh, the, the sort of the great revelation was Lorenzo Insigne, who's always been playing out wide under Sadi, coming inside and, and really having a an electric start to the campaign there in a, in a number ten role, and, and looked like he could um, take his career up to another level there. Recently, he hasn't been in great form, Insigne, which has been a, perhaps one of the reasons why Napoli's results are a bit more up and down. He's injured um, too, isn't he? 
Sorry? He's injured too, isn't he, at the moment? Or Yes, he is, yeah. So uh, we're, we're not going to, um, I don't think, uh, see him certainly in the first leg. And and in, in any case, it's not really the first choice attack for Napoli anymore. The first choice attack for, for Napoli now would be led by Arik Milik, um, the, the Polish striker, who's much more conventional. He's a big, tall, uh, powerful centre-forward, good in the air, uh, but not as quick. And and so that's the that's what Arsenal will be up against, I think. And 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 I don't expect to see any sort of particular wrinkles in that. It'll be a two-man attack, and it'll most likely be Mertens and, and Milik. What about defensively? Because um, in Serie A, anyway, I think they're probably the second or best, or second or third best defensive record in the league. They've only conceded twenty-six goals. So, you know, is are there challenges there for uh, this Arsenal attack? Because if there is a strength in this Arsenal team, of course it is It is going forward with Aubameyang and Lacazette, Mkhitaryan, Iwobi, Ozil, Ramsey, these guys who can really cause defences problems. Will they be worried about what Arsenal, the threat that Arsenal can pose? Look, I mean, any sensible manager will be worried um, about what Arsenal have up front at the moment. Um, obviously, Aubameyang and, and Lacazette in particular mm. just, uh, last uh, Monday night, uh, just looking absolutely fantastic at the moment. So I, I'm certain he'll be concerned about it. Um, what they have got, uh, Napoli, is, in my opinion, one of the absolute uh, best centre-backs in the world right now in uh, uh, Kadu Koulibaly. Uh, the, the the area in which I would say they are potentially uh, more vulnerable is is down the the flanks at fullback. Now, of course, as I just mentioned, it'll be interesting to see exactly which uh, which formation we get out of uh, Ancelotti. Even if it is again notionally a four four two, are we going to get Maximovic back there at fullback and mm. and that back three in effect and, and having the two uh, or having Callahan particularly on the right drop back and and do more defensive work um, because if it's uh, if it's not that, I'm actually just sorry. I'm I'm, I'm stalling because I'm just che- checking something on the injury news. Sure. Uh, even as I uh, speak to you, yeah. So yes, I, I think looking at uh, who he's got available, it's most likely going to be um, uh, it's most likely going to be Hussai at right back and and Mario Rui at left back. Mario Rui is is not a good left back. Mario Rui is uh, slow. He's uh, uh, I think the, the the accepted term in in the modern football parlance is he's a shit house, um, and he uh, he will you know he will get exposed if you attack him with pace. I think that's definitely an area in which I would consider Napoli to have some vulnerability. The question is you know what what necessarily are you going to do with that? Again, I wouldn't necessarily think that putting balls into the box is particularly smart against this uh, Napoli defense if we're going for crosses into middle because Koulibaly is so authoritative in the box because they have got some strength at centre back. Yeah. Uh, I think um, that Raul Albiol very possibly is is uh, not going to make it back for either of these two legs. He's been out since since early February, so I'm not uh, certain he'll be there, which does mean that Kalat Koulibaly's partner is slightly less certain. We've had Luperto playing there recently, who's a, a bit more inexperienced. It could be Maximovic who slides in there, which takes away your option of going um, with the uh, uh, of going with a, uh, a back three, perhaps. But yeah, they, they're solid at the back, Napoli. They're, they're certainly not bad there but i don't think um i don't think it's it's for instance like uh, going up against this juventus team uh, you might look at and think wow that's a really sort of imposing defense with Chiellini, with bonucci it's it's a good defense but it's not um it's not impenetrable right and you know given that arsenal are at home in the first leg what what way do you expect napoli to approach this game because an away goal could be very, very important. The onus will be on Arsenal at home to come out and and win the game. Uh, if there is, well, if there is a vulnerability, there are a number of vulnerabilities around Arsenal, which, despite recent results, you know, they're not too far beneath the surface. Um, 
being hit on the counter-attack is is one of those as we are pushing uh, up the other end. Are they a team that are effective in that regard? Is that something that we have to to worry about a great deal? Or are their strengths, their attacking strengths, um, do they lie elsewhere? No, I mean, they definitely can be effective on the counter. Again, it depends slightly which uh, attack we see. Uh, if uh, it is... Um, if it's Mertens and Milik, then you've kind of got a very sort of, I don't know, you've got a very nice combination of, of different skill sets there. Mertens obviously is quick. He's good with the ball on his feet. He's good on the ground. And he's someone who you can use to really stretch the field uh, if you're looking to counterattack. And I, I'm certain he'll be used that way. At the same time, Milik is, is very effective in the air, very good for knocking the ball up to and having him hold the ball up. That's something that he can do very effectively for you. And of course, the two mm. of them can play off each other like that because Milik's good for the knockdown, good for... for getting out of defence with a high ball and, 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 and knocking it down for Mertens on the run. So they have options for breaking out if they're going to be playing on the back foot. And I think it's reasonable to expect, given Arsenal's home form in general, that they will be playing on the back foot whether they want to or not um, at, um, in North London. I do think that... Uh, I do think that Ancelotti is not a manager to sit back and, and entirely wait for you. I think yeah. if we look at the way they played again, above all, again, away to PSG in the Champions League group stages, they actually played with a, a lot of moxie. They they were very willing to, to, to try and dictate the game when they thought they had opportunities to. They've got a real, uh, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of the right, the right language to describe them. They've got a ball player in Jelinski in midfield. They've got someone who can dictate the tempo, who can... Uh, sort of look look up around him and, and and control the game if he has the opportunity to do that. They've got a really powerful ball winner alongside him in, in Alan. They've got the tools to try and um, run the game a little bit as well. And I think that it would be uncharacteristic for them not to at least try. But I, I do think away from home against Arsenal, there's going to be a recognition as well. It's going to be very hard for them to dominate possession, for instance. It's going to be very hard for them yeah. to, to, to dominate the field. So it'll be a question of being opportunistic as well. Be interesting to see what Arsenal do in central midfield. Um, you know, when you talk about players who can dictate the plane, there's someone who can disrupt. And Lucas Torreira is somebody who is sidelined at the moment from a domestic point of view because of suspension, but obviously will know Napoli well from his time in Serie A with Sampdoria. Uh, it seems likely to me, given he's got fresh legs and that experience, that he's a guy who could, uh, who Unai Emery could use to uh, to make the difference in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, I'm I'm a big fan of Lucas Torreira. I've yeah. enjoyed watching him this season, and I think he would be uh, certainly a, a, a solid choice in this game. It's it's interesting because, yes, as I say, Alan is a is a is a physical player. Alan is is going to try and and dominate those midfield battles one way or another, and that's very much his role in that midfield um, to 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 be physical, to be imposing. And I think in in terms of just his his structure, you can imagine him winning that fight. I mean, he's not tall himself, by the way, but he's muscular. Um, winning that fight with with Torreira on a physical basis, but. Uh, it's not always just physicality that wins the day, is it? There's more to there's more to being a, a, a clever midfield destroyer than that, and I think that um, I, I think it'd be a fascinating battle to be honest between yeah. the two if they're both on the pitch. All right, we'll we'll look forward to that. Um, I just wanted to ask you something about um, Monchi. You talked about Roma not being in a great position, and Monchi was. Uh, as far as we know, like a fair way down the road of becoming the technical director at Arsenal um, before going back to his former club, Sevilla, uh, sort of at the last minute where there was an expectation uh, at the Emirates that, that Munchie was going to arrive. Um, based on the work he's done there in Rome and in Italy and some of the comments made by the Roma owner, 
maybe I don't you know don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but perhaps a bit of a bullet dodged. Um, I think a lot of Roma fans uh, hold Monchi up as the sort of um, maybe alongside the owner Jim, Jim Pilotta. I think I think he's sort of held up as as the the architect of things that have gone wrong there. Um, I think that the transfer approach that the club led this summer was undoubtedly some, I mean, you know, I wrote about it at the time, so I'm not being wise after the fact on this. It was a very questionable strategy for me in that, look, a, a, a lot of interesting young talent brought in, which is of course, a, a, an intelligent thing to do. If you're a club like Romar that know you have to sell as well to sell as well as buy to be sustainable. You have to be able to make profits on certain players. Um, some of those have looked uh, extremely promising. I mean, Nicola Zaniola, who came in in the, the exchange with uh, Rajan Einglein going the other way, yeah. is, has been brilliant. Um, you could look at Justin Cliver and say he's shown some some flashes of, of real promise. You could go back to last season and say Chen Jizunda, someone who's flashed incredibly sort of game-changing talent, although he's also been very inconsistent. Um, but these are judgments that for the most part you can't you can't rush these young players you've got to give them time to to develop in the meantime though he's dropped significant money on a couple of older players who haven't panned out at all i mean javier pastore for for about 30 million euros is, is an utterly sort of bizarre signing you had a manager you say di francesco until well until recently when he was fired who is uh very much uh, a fan of the 4-3-3, thinks that's the best system in football, has been on the record in all sorts of interviews saying as much. Um, so it's no secret that's the way he likes to play. And, and Manchi buys a player who uh, is really only effective in the number 10 role and yeah. has been, as a result, a total waste. Uh, Steven Nzonzi, who has been linked to Arsenal in his time as well, sure. a, a talented player, um, but again, not a young player, getting on for 30 at the time when he was signed. Um, and... Very much similar in mould to Daniele De Rossi, who you already have. Fine, you could talk about looking for an heir to De Rossi, although if you're looking for that, I would question why you're not going a little bit younger. Um, and in the meantime, you let Nyingalang go and you let uh, Strutman go in the same summer, both of whom are sort of combative midfielders and also leaders in, in the changing room to a great extent. You sign a whole wealth of, of interesting, talented young midfielders, but who all do basically exactly the same job. Players who uh, are best sort of breaking the lines, bringing it forward from midfield into attack and, and, and getting up to support the attack and just create no balance in that midfield at all. So you've been left all season with De Rossi either on his own at 35, 36 years old now trying to, to to wage a one-man war in front of the defense uh, which he hasn't got the legs for yeah or Nzonzi coming into replacement and Zonzi's a, a good sort of deep line midfielder and distributor he's not really a destroyer either so there's just no substance to that midfield and I think for that you have to blame Monchi it's a very long-winded answer I'm sorry because no fans okay. won't really care about the specifics but uh, there's just to highlight a way in which Monchi whilst he might have identified some interesting talent that could be good for Roma in the future, just didn't seem to build a team. He didn't seem to build something that was coherent. And and certainly the line out of Jim Pelotta, the owner, is, look, you were in charge, buddy. You know, I, I uh, uh, sort of spoke, you know, hired you and gave you this responsibility and listened to you because you were the football guy. You know, I'm an American uh, sports owner and, and I'm being... Uh, guided by my football people and being guided by the people who who tell me what's right and and that was your job and i think that monchi was given a lot of room to maneuver it at rome i think he was given a, a lot of trust and I, and I don't think in two years that they felt like they really got that much great out of him so 
look, uh, I think with with managers and directors, context matters. Sometimes being in the right place at the right time and the right opportunities can change things. Of course, Roma had one really big letdown in the transfer market, which they were so close to signing Malcolm. The deal was basically done. Then suddenly goes and joins Barcelona instead. And who knows? Maybe if he comes, everything is right in the world and, and they have a fantastic season. But I, I look at that transfer strategy that, that he led, especially last summer. I look at the fact that they don't have any competent centre-back pairing, really. I said competence, taking it too far. I'm, I'm overstating that. No, I, I know what you mean. They don't have an yeah. adequate, I would say, centre-back yeah. partner for, for Costas Manolas. They don't have an adequate uh, alternative to Edin Dzeko up front because Patrick Schick has been there uh, not delivering on his potential for, for too long now. And, and yeah, I think Monchi could have done better, put it that way. Okay. Right, well, we'll we'll see what Arsenal do. <laughs> oh, sorry, I, I feel like I, I maybe unburdened a bit on Monchi there. You know, no, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. It was just Look, sort of wind you up and let you go on that one. Yes. You felt like you needed to get that off your chest a little bit, so I'm happy to give you the platform to do that. And <laughs> we'll see what Arsenal do. Just a couple of quick ones before we go. Um, you know, Arsenal are in fourth, um, down from third earlier in the week, but when you consider the gap between Spurs and Arsenal five or six weeks ago, uh, you know, it's it's promising and we're in a promising position to secure top four. Are, are are we sort of where you thought we might be at this point in the season or are, are maybe a little bit ahead of where you thought we might be? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably ever so slightly ahead. I'll be honest, Andrew. I think for a long time I didn't, I didn't dare to think that we could be in the top four this late in the season with a game in hand on 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 Tottenham that could put us up in third in theory and I'm I'm very much in the camp that um is is counseling caution at the moment because I think there's a lot of people looking at that league table and, and looking at the the just the names of the teams Arsenal have left to face and thinking that Arsenal are a very good bet mm. um, and I think that uh, as a, you know it was highlighted on the blogs um I, I think that um the away form and the fact that five of those seven games are away from home is is getting a little bit overlooked at the moment. Um, I think there's a possible explanation for us being a little further ahead than I thought, and that's that we've played more of our home games than we have our away games, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and and as many people have said, I, I don't have a great explanation for why it has been so different at home and away. It's not um, it's not that the Emirates is is a cauldron necessarily all the time, and and that we um, are a scary place for people to come from an atmosphere point of view. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure part of that is all just me trying not to jinx us as well. I, I very much uh, <laughs> want to feel optimistic, but I'm a bit scared at the moment. It's 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 an awareness that my hope levels have climbed that's making it scary. Yeah, because it's kind of easy <laughs> when you go ah, there's no chance. You know, you can live with exactly. that quite easily. It's it's what might be and what could be, I guess. But I suppose I I think what what gives me a little bit of hope is that a little bit of hope. I mean, I say that when you look at the fixtures, I know they're away, and I know we have our problems away, but I've kind of liked. Um, Emery's problem solving throughout this season and he has had problems to solve you know we had that long unbeaten run at the the start of the season after we lost our first two games and there were issues in that and and we all know what they were defensively but you know he's had a a, a situation with Mesut Ozil to deal with and we seem to have a nice kind of effective truce if you like to call it that at this moment in time, which is seen Ozil come back in the team and do well. Ramsey's future, now that it's sorted, has provided either clarity or freedom to him. We had issues with uh, injuries. You know, we've had to cope with Hector Bellerin, Rob Holding, Danny Welbeck. We've done more or less that. We had a bad run. We came out of that. And I think that 
is kind of what gives me a bit more hope um, because the away form is a problem and it's something to which he needs to find a solution. And based on what we've seen so far, I feel more confident. I'm not saying he's definitely going to do it, but I, I do feel more confident about his ability to do it now than I did six weeks ago or, or eight weeks ago. Yeah, and, and you touched on something there, which I think is is really important. Look, it's it's not a um, it's not a secret to anyone. It's it's sort of been measured statistically and 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 talked about at length that playing in the Europa League tends to disadvantage teams in the league. It yeah. tends to the Thursday Sunday schedule. Whatever you think of that, whatever you sort of want to um, hypothesize about, and I hear this sometimes. People saying, "Oh, they're professional footballers. They earn a lot. They should be able to handle it." It, it doesn't matter, you know, what you would like to be true. The fact is that. In general, we can sort of see a statistical link between doing that and, and results suffering for it. And I think that, therefore, when you know that to be true, one of the most important things you can have uh, available to you late in the season when you're doing that schedule is, is uh, I guess, as, as big a squad as you can have, as ample uh, a squad of players you can have. And I think that two players you, you just mentioned, uh, Ozil and Ramsey, who at different times have, have had real sort of difficulties in, in their relationship clearly with the club and, and, and perhaps with the manager as well, they're very much in the fold at the moment, aren't they? And, and yeah. Ramsey, uh, I think everyone's having this sort of nostalgic moment the moment where it's sad to see, sad by the thought that he's going because he's played so well in the last few games. Um, but but Meza as well has been, has been part of this, has been involved. And I think that um, is one of the things that's impressed me most about Emery is that uh, I suppose there was a certain point, especially with Ozil, where he looked at him and thought, God, is this like his... Um, I don't know his his I don't say that pet project, but more like you know his pet uh, peeve is is Meza Urzel or something. And he just he's never going to be able to reconcile it, and he's decided he's he's going to sort of burn this player almost on the, on a point of principle. Yeah, and it's been the opposite. It's been a willingness to 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 draw a line under things at the right time, to be flexible and 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 make the opportunity for people to come back and, and impress you and do something for you. And I think that's that's critical at this point of the season when we really need all hands on, do- on deck. Do you, I mean, very finally, do you think perhaps we underestimate the time it takes for a manager to get to know his players and his squad and you know when you add in with Emery as well a new country a new league a new not new style of football it's not as if English football is completely alien to him you know he's he's had experience of it uh, through his European um, experiences with his with his previous clubs but yeah, I thought it was quite interesting the other week where he said uh, something along the lines I'm paraphrasing where you know the he understands what Ramsey and Ozil can give him in terms of tactical flexibility now and maybe yeah. it's sort of coming to the party a bit late, but it, it must take time for any manager and any new coach to really understand, you know, you look at Mesut yes, I've got a brilliant playmaker, but, you know, if you read what Arsene Wenger has said about him, if you read even what Jose Mourinho has said about him in the past, he is a, he is a player who requires a certain dexterity in terms of man management, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And that will be true not just of Ozil, but it'll be true of many players. How do you get the best out of them? How do you, you know, how do you find the right combinations? It could be a case that he's finding those things or has discovered those things over the course of the season and now is in a better position to put all the pieces together to make something effective. Of course. You know, every every manager's job when they come into a new one, whether it's a new country or the same country, there's always going to be a bit of trial and error at the beginning unless you're doing exactly what your predecessor did and, and that carries its its own risks. If you're going to do that, you can 
sort of end up in a situation where you feel like you're just creating a slightly less good replica. Um, I, I hate to make everyone look across London, but I mean, you could you could draw a really recent example of that in Antonio Conte's first season at Chelsea, where a, you know, a few games in, it looked like it was going to be a total catastrophe. He worked his formation on and went out, worked his formation out and went on to win the league. So, mm. th- th- of course, there's scope within within a season to to work things out tactically and 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 also in terms of personality of your players and and who can give you something and who can give you something else and and the nuances of everyone's game. I think that's a hundred percent natural. I think it's probably also natural. That, that players, you know, that works both ways. Players take some time to get used to a new manager and, and his regime, and some might not. Some might sort of get there on day one and be like, oh my goodness, this is the guy I've been waiting for. This guy looks at football like I do, and I get it. Like, I understand that right away, and I can jump straight in. But there might be other players who who need a while to to understand a perspective, to sort of go, okay, you know what, I didn't get this at first, what you're trying to do with this team, but having done a hundred repetitions of this now in practice i understand it and i see why it works yeah um i think i think of course there's there's so much sort of more subtle going on than 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 than, you know you get in the headlines and and the obvious sort of uh well not even the obvious even even just in in sort of putting in terms of the glimpse that we ultimately get of what of what happens between a manager and player we see uh the 90 minutes every thursday sunday um they get day-to-day contact, day-to-day relations, day-to-day uh, sort of very specific high-level work done on the training ground because that's their job. Um, and perhaps, if anything, it's it's the most encouraging sign you would you would want to see from a manager is that he's doing his job better the longer he's there because that means those relationships are strengthening and, and people are, are understanding more what they want from each other. Mm. Well, look, maybe it's all coming together at the right time. Um and if it helps in those five away games we've got from the seven Premier League games we've got remaining, then all the better. Um, we, we better leave it there. I appreciate the time, as always. Paolo, thanks very much. Anytime. Cheers to Paolo. You can find him on Twitter at Paolo underscore Bandini. At Paolo underscore Bandini. Napoli are going to be a hell of a test, but it's good. I'm looking forward to it, I have to say. I'm looking forward to big European nights against quality opposition. Uh, you know, Bate Borisov, Ren. I'm not necessarily putting them in the same category, but, you know, they don't get the juices flowing in any way, do they? Really? Come on. Nobody's that excited about playing those kind of teams. So, uh, you know, Kesarasara in the Europa League, if we go through, good. If we don't, maybe it will be just the thing that we need to consolidate our place in the top four. Could be a case, though, that depending on what happens in April, that the Europa League grows in importance. This is why this month is just so... Uh, so crucial to where this season is going to go and what next season is going to be like. Um, we do have Everton on Sunday. I guess there are going to be some team issues. Granit Xhaka and Laurent Koscielny missed the game against Newcastle on Monday night. We don't have any info as of yet about their potential availability coming up uh, for Sunday. Aaron Ramsey came off uh, on Monday night against Newcastle. Unai Emery said it was cramp. So if it was just cramp, then you would assume he's going to be ready and he'll be available to play. Lucas Torreira still suspended. And beyond that, I don't think we've got any problems um, unless some crop up tomorrow when the uh, press conference happens. As for the game itself and what's coming up, you know, Emery this week made a very clear point about how the team need to try and replicate their home form, which is fantastic. 44 points at home 
this season, which is, I mean, it's up there with what Manchester City and Liverpool have done this season, and they're two teams that are fighting for the title. Away from home, we've only got 19 points, and that's very, very mid-table. So he's looking for this team to produce what they can produce at home away And I don't think there's any reason from a footballing point of view why they can't do it. There's got to be something else. It's a confidence thing. It's a psychological thing. You know, we're slightly better this season than we were last season, but the bar is is very low there because we were just so bad last season. If we can put together a run of games towards the end of this campaign where we we can do it on the road, then it's going to make our chances of finishing in the top four all the better. So we'll, uh, we'll keep fingers crossed for that and I don't know what uh, else to say about Sunday's game Uh, we can beat Everton we know that Uh, but the away day thing looms large it's a bit of a weight on our shoulders so let's hope the team are up for it and focused and uh, and ready to go Um, so that's it that's it for this podcast. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Really do appreciate it. James and I will be recording an Arscast Extra. Of course, it may well be a case that the podcast this weekend comes out on Sunday. We could be recording Sunday evening due to, uh, well, it doesn't matter why, but we could be. So the podcast could be available on Sunday night, not long after the game. Well, actually, a bit after the game, because it's probably going to take a couple of hours for us to sit down and do it, a couple of hours to record and edit and publish it and all that kind of stuff. But it could well be out on Sunday evening, if not first thing Monday morning. So join us for that. Uh, we'll have our Blog and our Blog News across the weekend. So until the next one, take it easy, folks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now, as we continue our tour of the new White Hart Lane, we come to the bar, the longest bar in any football club in the Premier League. It's 76 metres long, and it's estimated you'll only ever have to wait 12 or 13 minutes to get a pint from our on-site craft brewery, which, of course, has got its own IPA. IPA, what does it stand for? Idiots prefer Arsenal. Oh, I do love making that joke. Now, to another feature that not too many people are aware of, and this is one of the most fantastic new things about this stadium, is our generator room. What's so special about a generator room, I hear you say? Well, not only does it keep things going when there's a power cut in the general area, the engineers have done something remarkable. That's right. When the generators are running... They sound exactly like Harry Kane. I promise you it's incredible. Let me open the door and give you a listen. Truly amazing, but now for the most important part of our tour... 
The trophy room! Let me bring you inside! Another remarkable bit of engineering here is the echo inside this trophy room! When you say something, it takes exactly 19.61 seconds to reverberate back to commemorate the last time we won the league in 1961! Let me demonstrate! Hello? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.